in personal injury world, you get people that come in with pretty horrific injuries. You know, dog bites and dog attacks uh, are pretty nasty, not just because it, it you know, can cause pretty bad damage on, on your skin, but it's pretty nasty because it can cause psychological problems. People can be really, I mean, it's just terrifying to be attacked by an animal. It causes a lot more fear than maybe a car wreck would. A tongue-in-cheek saying we often hear is, well, I don't trust anyone who doesn't like dogs. Most of the time, we just assume that the person saying this has a cold heart or just hasn't met the right dog. But sometimes people have valid fears of dogs. Under the right conditions, dogs can be dangerous animals. Many of the dogs we think of when we think of vicious breeds have a bite force in excess of 200 pounds per square inch. This is why dog owners have to take precautions when hosting guests, securing their yards, or handling their dogs in public. Just one unrestrained moment can severely injure a person and land a dog owner in court. From the Carlson Law Firm, welcome to Season 1 of The Verdict, a podcast about the laws and processes that shape the real courtroom outcomes of personal injury cases. I'm your host, Keja Conley. My name is Timothy Roars. I'm an attorney, an associate attorney here at the Carlson Law Firm, working in uh, personal injury cases. Tim is a Texas attorney who recently settled a dog bite case for $250,000. You're in middle school and having to walk around with a disfigured face as a, as a young female. As you get made fun of by kids at school, as you're bullied because of it, as you no longer engage in group activities because of it. That's Tim talking about the damages his young client now has to live with as a result of a dog owner's failure to properly restrain her dog. Those are the kinds of things that you know we are, people are asked to put money damages to, and it's, it's almost impossible to do because that means dramatic effects. Failure to restrain a dog, or any animal for that matter, makes pet owners responsible for any injuries their negligent handling causes. According to Tim, negligent handling can happen in a number of ways. If you tie the dog up, uh, making it more aggressive, that's negligent handling of the animal. Um, If you don't uh, have them on a leash, that can be negligent handling of an animal. It really means you didn't act like a reasonable dog owner. You weren't weren't responsible with your dog. And the third is actually the one that, that I work more in is, it's called negligence per se, what that is, is somebody violated, violated a statute. And that doesn't have to be a dog bite statute, but it could be if there's a leash law in a city or something like that. If they let the dog, the dogs at large running around the city, they're not doing anything to stop it. They violated a city ordinance. As a matter of law, they can be held liable for anything that dog does while it's doing that. So that's, that's something that you, is actually one of the more effective ways to get liability. Who gets sued in a dog bite case? Uh, underneath Texas law, there are a couple individuals that can be liable for a dog attack. The first person is probably the most obvious. It's the person who owns the dog, the dog owner. I always tell people that walk into my office, you know, I'm not suing dogs here. I'm suing the owners who aren't responsible. And so uh, when an owner isn't, isn't handling the dog correctly, um, that's the first person you can sue. Um, the second person is actually uh, landlords can be sued as well. Uh, landlords who, who have renters, that house these animals. It's a higher burden to go after them. The main thing is they need to know the dog's there and know that the dog is dangerous is the key thing. So how can a landlord know that a tenant's dog is dangerous? Well, and that is the hard thing with going after landlords. That's the most difficult thing to prove. If you can 
find out that you know they find out that they did inspections of the property, knowing the dog was there. The dog exhibited dangerous propensities, you know, growled and snarled and lunged at them while they were on the property, things like that. Some have uh, reporting. They have to, like, tenants have to report to the landlord about dogs or incidences on premises. You find out that they knew about this dog on the premises, yet they, the landlord didn't do anything about it, didn't kick him out of the premises um, because of the dangerous dog. Um, it's a hard way to go after it. And there's different areas of law. It could be a landlord, if it's an out-of-possession landlord, somebody that's out-of-state, far removed. That's really hard to go after. Uh, there's different rules that apply to them. If it's what they call an in-possession landlord, it's a little bit easier. don't have as, as high of a burden. And that could be like an apartment owner as opposed to like renting a house out. So all these things come into play, and there's complexities involved with it. But that notice element's really what matters. Can you get a landlord that knows about this dog? And out-of-possession landlords, it's, it's pretty difficult to, to, find, to prove that they knew a dog was there and knew that the dog was dangerous. You might be able to get them to say the dog's there, but that's dangerous. That's a little bit harder. But there are ways. And there are ways. What makes it hard to prove? Proving actual knowledge means that they, they were aware. Not that they should have known, but they were actually aware that the dog was there. And that means that you need to go through the discovery process, try to find emails, correspondence between the landlord and their, their tenant, you know, try to find a way that shows that they knew the dog was there um, and, and the dog was dangerous. So really, a lot of that evidence comes down to circumstantial evidence. I know that's not, you know, people hear that, they think flimsy evidence, right? That's circumstantial. But that, that is evidence in, in courts of law. And what that means is you have situations where, uh, for instance, I had a, a, a situation in which the landlord was out of possession, but his his girlfriend, his you know girlfriend of ten years, was best friends with the tenant, right? And they talked all the time. They were always on the phone talking to one another. And so her best friend is the dog owner. So I could get circumstantial evidence they would have talked about their dog having previous attacks and being a dangerous dog. So that's that's one way to, to prove it up. But to actually say, unless you get them admitting it on the record. You usually have to prove it up through maybe Facebook, um, you know, seeing if social media posts, if they're friends on Facebook, right, the landlord and the tenant. Sometimes you can get it that way. Sometimes it's through emails. And sometimes it's, if it's an apartment complex, you can go look at all their, their tenant files that they have. They say, okay, dog, you know, attack was reported here. Um, they didn't do anything about it and then attack somebody again. They may have it in their files just like that. Who is more likely to be bit by a dog? Is it adults? Is it kids? I've seen the gamut. You know, I've seen the full gamut of, of cases come in. You see adults getting bitten. A lot of times, uh, you know, it's them out running and a dog has escaped. And so they see this large person running down the sidewalk and, and, and they can go after them. Um, I've seen the ones where an, an adult will try to break up a dog fight. I've got a few of those. Where, where they, you know, their, their dog is being attacked by another, you know, a neighbor's dog or something like that. And in their attempts to break it up, they get bit. Uh, and, and then, of course, children get bit. Um, and that, those are the usually, I mean, those are a little more sad because the, the children really don't have a way, any way to defend, you know, defend themselves. Not like adults do, but children are just a little more helpless. And so when those large animals go after them, the, the damages tend to be a little more severe. Dogs make most of their judgments based on the body language and behavior of humans. For this reason, dogs usually view children more as litter mates than as pack leaders. 
Even when parents teach their children to give cues and other commands to family pets, none of it really matters. This is because children spend most of their time, well, being children around their family pets. Kids play by running, jumping, and wrestling the same playing dogs do as puppies. And it's these behaviors that signal to dogs that children are juvenile littermates. And so they'll sometimes nip at them and things like that. So I've seen ones where kids who, uh, you know, these dogs don't have necessarily maybe that prior dangerous act, but they treat this kid like another dog and they'll nip at them. And if it's a big enough animal, sometimes that nip can mean some pretty nasty stuff. Let's kind of flip it here. Well, what are pet owners' defenses in a dog bite case? So pet owners, they, uh, the main one you're going to see there is it's comparative negligence. Essentially, they're going to say the person that was bit, they're partially, if not all, at fault for this. Um, another way to say that is they provoked the attack in some way. So you can provoke it in different ways. You can, if you go and um, you're taunting the dog, you know, that's not going to go well for you. Or sometimes if you go into their, their turf, right, you enter their yard, um, you're in their space, it can be a provoked attack and therefore comparative negligence can lower that. There's a kind of a, a side claim that sometimes people bring they make it what's called a premises liability case. So it's there's a there's a dangerous thing on the premises. Um, you see that with like uh, you know slip and fall cases and things like that, right? You know there's a, there's a dangerous condition on the premises. Sometimes they, people, some attorneys will bring a dangerous premises, you know, a premises liability case for dogs. I don't like doing that. That's where you get into trespassing and some of the other things that really don't help your case. Um, and so I, I'd like to stay over in the negligence side of things. So the main ones though are, are provoking an attack and that's, can be any, any number of things. You know, I, I had a lady that was out running and, and came around a corner, didn't see when she came around the corner, there's some bushes there and she ran right into a dog, right? She, she didn't see it. The dogs were at large. They're out running in the neighborhood. She runs, knocks right into the dogs. And so they attack her. And so that can be provocation, right? And they have an argument there that, you know, she's a little bit at fault. She wasn't watching enough where she's going, right? They can argue that um, she provoked the animals in some way and therefore lower the liability. That's interesting. So then that is where you would bring in, you know, things like leash laws. Yeah, right? yeah. That's, that's where you, that's why I like what they call the negligence per se. If you violate a city ordinance, you're at fault for what the dog does while it's out. You can, you get some good liability there. They can still lower that liability with provocation and, those arguments, but it's a lot easier to argue in court that this person was negligent because of their dogs run at large than to try other forms of negligence, right? That's, that's you know, say, hey, they should have kept their dog, you know, confined. They should have put them in their yard. They should have had it on a leash, and they didn't. The provocation, depending on how bad it is, if you go and taunt an animal, then yeah, you're going to have a hard time you know, if that per if you have your clients out pushing the dog around and it tries to attack them, yeah, that's I mean that's outright provocation. The other types, you know, just running into the dog that's at large. I mean, what the dog's at large to begin with, right? The dog was out running around in breach of that Sydney ordinance already. We don't want to demonize any breed of dog, but in your practice, well, what are the breeds that you do see most often? You're right. I mean, any dog can be dangerous or can bite somebody. Um, and I say that very, very specifically because of the different types of cases we talked about. We talked about how 
um, you, you can handle an, an, an animal, you're not handling it well or as a reasonable person, even if that dog's not dangerous, if you don't do what you're supposed to do as an owner, you can still be on the hook. So any dog can be mishandled or can be dangerous. However, I mean, I, it's, you see a lot of, of course, you see a lot of pit bulls and Rottweilers and German Shepherds and all those types of dogs that, that typically people associate with being dangerous. You know, I'm not the dog expert. I've talked to some of them and there's, you could get different opinions from a lot of them about the dangerous nature of these dogs. But definitely what you can tell from these animals is these larger breeds like pit bulls, like the, the German Shepherds, if they bite somebody, they're going to cause a little more damage, right? And so somebody who gets bit by a small animal, if, if, a, if a small Shih Tzu, you know, comes and bites somebody, they're usually not going to go to an attorney's office because the, the bite is not going to cause that kind of damage. Is it going to be worth, quote, worth your while? Is it actually going to be worth the effort of going through the litigation process? Maybe not. Um, there might not be enough damages to really to justify going down that road. So I do see a lot of the bigger animals, and there's some arguments there about those dogs are sometimes pre-territorial. There's also, I believe, there's a little bit of a selection effect, meaning that certain individuals may be drawn more to certain breeds, and some people go after the pit bulls because they're known to be dangerous, right? They're like, ooh, maybe I want a dangerous dog. I want to be scary. I want to be intimidating, right? And so those type of people go and get that pit bull, expecting that pit bull to be territorial and aggressive and when you treat a dog that way it's going to it's self-fulfilling prophecy that dog's going to become if it's neglected if it's not treated with care and it's not confined properly uh, that dog can be become dangerous because of the lack of care and uh, and so you see some of that selection effect is because they people believe that dog to be dangerous they get the dog to be protected you know to protect their property to be scary to be intimidating Tim represented a middle school age client who endured severe injuries to her face by a dog whose owner wasn't able to properly restrain him. The injuries he's about to describe are graphic. I just settled out this case a few years ago. Um, my client, who was a, um, a preteen girl, uh, she was outside with some friends and saw a... Um, a woman walking two pretty large pit bulls down the street. And, uh, and my client, who a uh, sweet girl, really loved animals, just a huge animal lover, wanted to go and pet these dogs. And so uh, she asked the lady who was walking down the sidewalk, can I, can I pet your animals? And, um, and the lady says yes. Um, so she walks up, my client walks up, to, really excited to pet these animals. The one of the dogs jumped up the first time, and you know, maybe a little excited um, from all the, the commotion or whatever else. And so, my client she takes a step back, you know, reorients, and she's going to try to go pet the dog again because she's really excited to see this dog. And the owner doesn't do anything, doesn't stop the introduction, doesn't calm her dog down, doesn't correct the dog in any way. And so my client goes in to pet this dog. The dog does up again and, and, and gets a pretty bad bite across the bridge of her nose and bites off her bottom lip. Um, and it was pretty, I mean, it was pretty awful uh, to see somebody, you know, in middle school, essentially, with a horrible, you know, missing half of the, her bottom lip, essentially, um, and was in quite a bit of shock. So... Um, and there's a lot more we found out after we, we got into discovery process about 
that particular dog was a stray picked up off the side of the road um, and that it wasn't trained like the other one had been, had been go through training process and that it had actually attacked a neighboring dog pre previous to, to this bite. So there was a lot of facts we found out later about this dog and kind of some of the, the mistakes that the owner had made in that situation. It's important to highlight here that this dog didn't just attack a neighboring dog, it attacked and killed a neighboring dog. But one dog attacking and killing another dog typically isn't enough to prove that a dog had a propensity for aggression toward humans. There's there's some arguments there. It depends on which, this kind of gets for the legal side of things, but it definitely can show, I used it to show that the, this, this lady that was walking dogs should have known to be careful. And so it can go to that negligent handling case that we talked about. When you get into the strict liability, owning a dangerous dog, there's arguments about whether that really tells you a dog is dangerous. Now, you or I might think, hey, this dog's attacking other dogs, so you know it's, you know, it's dangerous. But the case law is a little murkier there, and it's going to be hard to prove that that's the establishing fact. There's case law on that point. Um, you need a little bit more than that usually. But when it comes to negative handling, I mean, if you know your dog has, has bitten another dog, has maybe been a little bit more aggressive and you are trying to introduce it to a child, you may want to take some precautions like having that dog under control and keeping it um, contained when it starts to jump up and get excited. Um, there's also some arguments about the type of leash. We can talk about that too. The type of leash that she had was it a choker leash, um, which can sometimes make dogs a little more aggressive and uncomfortable. So I'm not trying to place blame on your client or anything. Mm -hmm. However, if... The child asked to pet the dog. Mm -hmm. How does that make the owner responsible for any injuries that the dog caused? No, it's, it's a great question. And that was the main argument from the defense here was that she's the one who, who pet this dog. She's the one who approached the defendant and her dogs, my client was. So part of the blame should be put on her is what the argument was. When I, you know, when we, we didn't go and... and go to court and go through the process of presenting this to a jury. But the argument would have been that my client was a child. You know, she doesn't know about the, the nature of this dog going in, right? No one would know. Not even if she wasn't a child, no one would know that this dog has been dangerous before. But she's relying on the adult in the situation to make the reasonable decision. And not only the adult, but the adult who owns the dog, who knows the dog. So who's relying on whom more? And that was going to be the main argument in response to that was even though my client went want, wanted to pet this dog, she was a child. She wanted to pet a dog. That's a very normal thing for a child to want to do. I, I tell you what, I have a my best friend, he, he owns a German Shepherd, mm -hmm. uh, loves that dog. But he has very strict rules about when and how people can pet his dog. He makes that dog sit down, holds on to the collar to make sure uh, the dog can't do anything at all. Um, and, and then we'll let the, the stranger pet the dog and gives very clear instructions about how to pet the dog. And even though, I mean, that dog is one of the most well-behaved, well-trained dogs, professionally trained, everything else, but even then he takes those precautions because it is a German Shepherd and could potentially bite somebody. And that's really what we were asking here is take the precautions. You have to be careful as a dog owner. Um, and this, this lady really wasn't, uh, and that, that was the main argument in response. What type of medical treatment did your client require? You see in dog bite cases where um, when people come in and it's you know it's a dog attack, you know they have they have bites, gashes. In this case, we had a, a 
missing lip. So when you have those types of injuries, the main treatment, um, I don't know if people know this, but doctors typically won't stitch up those wounds because they're worried about bacteria and things like that from the dog bite. So they'll actually leave the wound open. It can leave pretty nasty scarring. So initially, there's not actually much treatment they can do. They put some some uh, ointment things on it, some sort of, I don't even know what you call it. I'm not, I'm not the medical doctor, um, but some sort of like uh, adhesive that can kind of keep it together as best they can without closing the wound. And from there, they just let it heal. Some people, that's all they do, you know, is they get some initial care and that's all it can be and you're left with a pretty nasty scar. Other people will get um, and need plastic surgery. In this case, you know, the client needed some plastic surgery done. And, uh, and so plastic surgery, and then she actually saw a neurologist as well because there was some nerve damage. She was what they call incinate. means that you, she couldn't feel. There's like tingling, couldn't feel her bottom lip. And unfortunately, there really was nothing to be done for that bottom lip. That's terrible. Well, and, and well, let me say this: the plastic surgery could get done. The nerve damage, though, was, right. couldn't be fixed. Right. That was unfortunate. We kind of touched on this earlier, but did the owner know, or through your investigation of the case, did you discover that the dog had a history of aggression? Yeah. So we kind of talked about a little bit. Um, we didn't find this information out until really we get into the mix of things. You can find out through open records with the, with the city if this dog has had has a, its own little rap sheet, you know. Uh, you can ask animal control. Um, this dog didn't, and so it wasn't until we got into deposition and, and some of the discovery we found out that this dog had, one, been picked up on the side of the road. And so we have no idea the, the full history, but you can make some assumptions based on the fact that this was a stray dog and probably didn't live a, um, a loved and protected life. And then, two, this dog had previously attacked another, another dog had bitten another dog. Um, so it had some incidences where it could show that this dog was, was a little more dangerous and had some dangerous propensities. Um, and it was really important to, um, you know, to be reasonable, to keep that dog maybe away from children altogether, um, or definitely take some precautions if you're going to induce that child, or at least induce that dog to children. When I was doing research on, the, on this case, one of the things that was talked about in her file um, is that the defendant had a beware of dog sign. How do beware of dog signs hurt or help you? And it, can, it can help and it can hurt. It can go either way. It can help us or hurt the owner, however you want to look at it. In this case, I think they helped us a little bit more uh, because I was able to, to talk a little bit with her about why she had those signs up in the first place um, because maybe she knew that her dog needed a little more control and needed a little bit more care um, and she didn't do that in this incident. So what happened to the dog? So in this case, uh, this dog actually wasn't uh, put down. What happens that there's a criminal side to this, right, where you know the, the animal control will come in, they'll take the dog away, put it in quarantine sometimes, checking on shots, that kind of stuff. And if this is a pretty nasty attack or if this is uh, maybe a second offense, they'll have a, what they call a dangerous dog hearing where a judge will determine whether this was a, is a dangerous dog. And so uh, in this incident, there was a dangerous dog hearing. The judge uh, did not uh, deem this to be a dangerous dog. And that was mainly due to, I think there was a, a little bit of an emotional plea in this one. In this 
case, the dog responsible for the attack against Tim's client was the dog of the defendant's late husband. Since this was the first reported incident, the, the, the previous dog attack wasn't one that necessitated animal control coming out, and so that wasn't really talked about. This was the first reported incident on this dog, and, and so the judge had some leniency there. Is a dangerous dog hearing, is it something that just occurs in Texas, or like is this like a national thing? Because I've never heard of this. So that's on, that's on the criminal, it's the, we say criminal side, but I mean, it's, it's a slap on the wrist, it's a fine, if anything, right? We're not talking, I mean, it's the equivalent of a, of a traffic court citation. Um, so um, it's, it's something that's definitely done in Texas. I don't know the, as far as if it's done in other states. I assume, I believe it is. I had a dog expert that is from the East Coast, I couldn't remember, Maryland or somewhere like that. Um, and he would um, do work for the city, and, and I think it had related to these dog, uh, you know, hearings. And I don't know if it's the same as in Texas, but they have something like that, I believe, in every state. Can the outcome of a dog hearing affect a civil lawsuit? It can. It can. So let's say the judge. Um, we have cases where a judge says a, a dog is dangerous, and the the people don't put it down. Um, or the you know if the dogs if they if the judge says this dog was dangerous then you can use that in your civil case to show maybe that this dog was you know that they that they should have known and that some of these uh, strict liability claims that this dog had dangerous propensities we have a, a criminal side saying yeah this is this dog has dangerous propensities um, so you it can impact the case on that side and, and uh, the defense in this case wanted to use that. The, the dangerous dog hearing, that information, wanted to use that to show this dog wasn't dangerous, right? They want to say, you know, and so it could go either way, either way to help or hurt you. Uh, but they were definitely going to try to use this as a way to really lower, um, you know, their liability, um, maybe maybe get rid of some of those other claims. If we had gone to a summary judgment to try to get rid of some of these, these different causes of action, where there may have been some more argumentation on those points. We didn't just get that far down. What type of injuries does someone need in order to pursue a dog bite claim? Well, there are really any injury, right? If any injury, whether it's a small scratch or in this case, you know, a really traumatic injury um, can justify bringing a case. The question becomes, is it worth it? We kind of talked about that before, but in order to be successful in dog uh, bite cases, most of the time you're having to litigate these cases. You're having to get into litigation with all the costs associated with it of filing a lawsuit, typically you need to have more severe injuries. And what that means is if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to be bit, you have a kind of a residual scar or something that shows it, you know, there's different types of damages in Texas. There's your, you know, your medical bills related to an incident, but there's also what they call disfigurement, you know, pain, suffering, mental anguish. And those are some more of the damages that you'd want to see in a dog uh, bite case. You'd want to see residual scarring, um, and, and that can depend on where it is. If it's scarring on the leg, it's going to be different than if it's scarring across your face, right? The value is different there. In this case, it was on the face, which is, um, you know, pretty nasty. Um, it's a case-by-case -case analysis, depending on what walks in the door. But a lot of times you're looking for things like scarring. You're looking for um, if they needed plastic surgery. You're looking for uh, any nerve damage. Those are typically the injuries we see in dog, dog bite, dog attack cases. 
What if a person is attacked by a large dog? The dog jumps on the person and knocks them down, and in the process, the person hits their head. And then they end up with some sort of a brain injury. Can they pursue a dog attack claim? Yeah, you can definitely do that. Um, You can have somebody, even if they're being chased by a dog and they fall, you, you still have a case out there that you can bring. And so it doesn't always mean that you have scarring. It doesn't always mean that you have bites. That's typically what you see. But if they can scratch, if they fall over something as they're backing away, walking away, those are injuries that were caused, if it's caused by the negligent owner, and the most, the common you'll see is if a dog is out running around the neighborhood. Dog's out running around the neighborhood and you have your client who's walking down the street and they get chased by this dog and trip over, you know, a fire hydrant and break your leg. You know, I've seen cases like that. Um, They still have a claim. They still have a claim because an an owner was negligent. They did something wrong. They let their dog run around outside uh, uh, in the neighborhood when they should have been in the fence on a leash. And because of that, they've caused an injury. It just has to be a cause. Um, So it doesn't necessarily have to mean a a bite. They have to latch on for for this person to be liable. It can be anything like that. Falling over, hitting head, breaking leg, that kind of stuff. Everyone loves dogs, and not all dogs are aggressive. Do you have any advice for people on approaching dogs they are unfamiliar with? Yeah, uh, well, everybody, I mean, yeah, dogs are great. And I I mean, I love dogs too, even though I do dog bite type cases. Um, And people should definitely own dogs. I think that's great. Uh, I don't want to sit here and say you shouldn't own a dog. Um, You got to be careful. Um, When, if you're going up to a dog, communicating with the owner, the owner of that dog saying, is it okay if I, if I pet this dog? You know, can, I, can you ask the dog to sit down so I can pet the dog? Can you ask that, you know, I want to make sure you have a hold of the leash? Just a few basic questions, maybe to, to judge that they have control of their animal. Definitely encourage people, keep your faces up and away from the dog. When people pet a dog, they put their hand out with the fingers out towards the dog. That's not the best way. That's how you get your, your fingers nipped. You actually want to use a fist and put it towards the dog. Slowly putting the back of your hand to the dog so that it can sniff you, feel more comfortable, and that way, if there's any nips or anything, you're not really getting the types of damages that you know are gonna require you to step into my office and talk about dog attack cases. A lot of people seem to believe that they don't need an attorney to help them after a dog bite. What can a personal injury attorney do that someone trying to deal with the insurance company alone can't? One is, you're assuming there is an insurance company yet, um, Sometimes finding the insurance company is one of the harder things that we have to do, and, and we have ways of doing that in, in, as, as attorneys. That's why when I talked about those three things I need to get, recoverability, we need to find an insurance policy, and it's a homeowner's insurance policy you're typically trying to find, or renter's insurance policy. It's, it's important to, one, find somebody who can pay, because a lot of times you'll, you'll run into situations where they, you, it's difficult to track that person down. So a law firm can help you actually track down the owner. Sometimes if that dog's at large, you don't really know who the owner is. And so you're going to need a little help doing that. But two, there's other ways of going about these these cases. And sometimes when you're submitting a case to an insurance company, they're going to evaluate it and they're going to look at your medical bills, right? They're going to look at the bills and they're going to say, okay, you had an emergency room bill for this this dog bite. So we'll give you, you know, Pay your emergency room bill, maybe $5,000 is a high-end type of emergency bill if it's more expensive. And then they'll say, okay, we'll give you maybe that much in pain and suffering, give you $10,000 offer. Um, the problem is that insurance companies, 
sometimes when they're evaluating these cases, they really don't look at things like mental anguish, disfigurement. They really don't evaluate them well. Um, and they can bypass those things when they're dealing with an individual who may not be as well-versed in the types of damages that are available. Um, and so I think with a personal injury attorney, they're able to, and we're able to put together the right evidence, the right things that can substantiate those types of damages that can change the value of your case uh, from just being, hey, pay your emergency room bill and get you some, a little bit of cash in pocket to maybe paying for those other types of damages that are a little bit more difficult to prove up unless you know what you're doing. In civil law, the American legal system allows for one type of remedy in these types of situations, and that's money. While money can't undo the injuries inflicted by a dog attack, it can be enough to help a person restart their lives. Monetary damages can cover economic losses such as loss of earnings and medical expenses, as well as non-economic damages like pain and suffering. So getting a settlement is is great, um, but ultimately these kinds of, of scars and these kinds of wounds to these the, the clients is really hard to, to come get past. And so getting some resolution, getting some monetary damages, it's more than just the money. It's, it's a resolution of everything. It's some closure to an event that has dramatically affected somebody's life. I'm not saying the money doesn't matter to them and it can help set them up and give them a future and a hope can get them into, um, you know, get them into school and paying for college, you know, maybe set up a down payment on a house one day, you know, those kinds of things for the, for these children. Um, you know, I like the fact that it gives them a, a future and I really do like the fact it gives them some closure to everything. Um, and that's why it's really important for, for me and I think it's important for the clients is that they get a chance to, to be okay with everything um, and, and begin and continue that healing process. There's a lot of counseling involved with this stuff. They're needing to see somebody because they've gone through a traumatic event. And so this, this getting a settlement can really be a part of, of helping them get along. Even in criminal law, there's criminal victim um, funds and things like that to give criminal vic uh, victims of crime some resolution. And it's about the money, but it's a lot more about getting some restitution, getting some sort of uh, fulfillment, and, um, and getting them in a place where maybe they can get some closure to, to a traumatic event. Visit us at carlsonattorneys.com where we offer valuable resources on the topic you just listened to. We'd also love for you to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and recommend us to your friends. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching The Carlson Law Firm. And as always, if you're in need of a personal injury attorney, give us a call at 1-800-359-5690. We are available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We care and we can help.